it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson, your birthday boy. And this is the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting live from Evanston, Illinois, just steps from the Northwestern University campus, my alma mater, and the place where I'll be speaking tonight. Looking forward to that. Go Cats. But a lot to get to here over the next three hours, as we do every day between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 and 5 p.m. Central Time. That's Monday through Friday. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free, on demand every day when the show is over. Also at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. Also at Guy P. Benson, my personal feed on both of those same platforms. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. And here on the radio side today, we've got quite the lineup in store. Charlie Hurt will be here later in the hour. Looking forward to chatting with him about the 24 election and more. Chris Carr is the attorney general in the state of Georgia. Some more Antifa mob violence outside of Atlanta at so-called Cop City. I mean, it's ugly. And the state of Georgia lowering the boom as they should on these criminals. We will talk to the attorney general of that state about that ongoing episode. And our colleague Howie Kurtz will also join us later in the program with his take on media coverage and who knows what else. That is all straight ahead here on the Guy Benson Show. And, yes, I did briefly make mention of the fact that it's my birthday. I am told that we will have a doozy of a home stretch around my birthday at the end of the show. What they have in store for me, I do not know, but we'll find out together. Tail end of the program, you don't want to miss that later on. Now, I want to begin the show today by reacting to something that I saw tweeted yesterday by the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, who seems to spend an awful lot of his time on social media and in interviews attacking other states, other states that, by the way, are much more successful than his. Maybe that's part of the whole plan here, deflect from his many failures by going after, on a culture war setting, other states, other governors. Now, in the process, I think he wants to sort of ingratiate himself to the left-wing base to get the electorate, at least the Democratic electorate, on side for a potential presidential run, whether it's this time or next time. This guy obviously wants to be president. His record in California will be a big impediment to those ambitions, so he's just fighting every culture war he can possibly get his hands on. And the latest example is in response to a story about how Walgreens, the chain of pharmacies all across the country, is not going to be distributing the abortion pill in 20 states. By the way, the seeking and the plan there is to stay in compliance with the laws in those states. 
All right, so this is not actually Walgreens' policy in California. This is Walgreens saying we are going to look to avoid running afoul of abortion laws in various states, but because, in Newsom's telling, they're caving to the extremists and the hard right or whatever, he is now severing ties between the state of California, the government in that state, and Walgreens as a company. So he tweeted the CNN story, headline, Walgreens will not distribute abortion pill in 20 states, and here's his little color commentary on it. California won't be doing business with Walgreens or any company that cowers to the extremists and puts women's lives at risk. We're done. So this is interesting. It's interesting for a number of reasons, one of which is a tweet sent out by Gavin Newsom last spring, less than a year ago, when Governor Ron DeSantis his would-be nemesis. He keeps trying to pick a fight with DeSantis. I mean, DeSantis is just getting the job done in Florida. You look at the trajectory of Florida versus California, no wonder Newsom is flailing. But when DeSantis was responding to some of the political attacks from Disney, including the move at Disney World and the corporate kingdom and all the sweetheart deals that DeSantis was going to unwind as a result of that whole episode, Newsom was deeply offended by that. And here's what he tweeted. This was April of 2022. This is what business-friendly means? We protect free speech in California. We help our businesses grow, thrive, and invent the future. Punishing businesses for speaking out against hatred is the move of an authoritarian regime. Now, just as an aside, when he says we protect free speech in California, no, they don't. In fact, they sue, for example, pro-life groups trying to force them to promote abortion at pro-life centers. That's how little they protect free speech. They persecute investigative journalists that do the wrong kind of journalism in California. So that's a crock. We help our businesses grow and thrive and invent the future. Do they? Or do they tax and regulate them out of existence? And shut them down for long periods of time during the uh, during the pandemic. If memory serves, Disney World in Florida was wide open for business for many months when Disneyland in California was shuttered. Not based on science, based on politics. The politics of Gavin Newsom and leftists in California. But nevertheless, at least a few months ago, Newsom's position was for Governor DeSantis in Florida to look to unwind extraordinary subsidies and sweetheart deals for Disney based on Disney aggressively, repeatedly, and gratuitously sticking their nose into Florida political business and culture wars and taking, by the way, the side opposite of the vast majority of parents in Florida when it comes to sexual and gender indoctrination of, like, six-year-olds. Newsom decided that was authoritarian anti-free speech, punishing of businesses. We don't do that here in California, said Newsom at the time. And now here we are today, where he's doing, well, exactly that. And it's not like Walgreens. There's actually a big difference here. Whether you agree with what DeSantis has done with Disney in Florida, and I've expressed some of my own reservations about it. I read to you 
the Wall Street Journal piece recently from Ron DeSantis defending and justifying the decision and said, like, I see both sides of that one. But DeSantis was taking away very special taxpayer-funded goodies and privileges that are extraordinary for Disney after these repeated provocations from sort of the woke California leadership of that company trying to effectively wield veto power over the elected representatives of the state of Florida on a very sensitive issue like parental rights and sexualized childhood. DeSantis did that based on direct political fights being waged in his state by that company. What Gavin Newsom is doing, he's mad at Walgreens for looking to follow the law in other states. Walgreens didn't fire off a bunch of press releases saying that they oppose Gavin Newsom's agenda and will seek to limit abortion in the state of California or something like that. Not even close. They're just not waging a culture war potentially in violation of state law elsewhere. And for that reason, Newsom is saying we're going to cut ties, we're severing ties as a state of California from Walgreens. They do a lot of boycotting out there. State and local governments, city governments in California, just boycotting all over the place. Boycotting red states over culture war issues. I saw that at least one of the cities was looking to rescind some of the boycotting because there's so much of it it's becoming untenable. Like they can't keep going with all the boycotts that they do. But this is the mentality of Gavin Newsom in the hard left. So when Ron DeSantis does something, I would say, much more justifiable based on an actual fight in his state with a corporation, it's like uh, corporate, it's bullying, it's punishing a company, it's squelching free speech, and it's authoritarianism. And of course, he turns around like the shameless hypocrite that he is and does something even less defensible, for sure, along these exact same lines. It's like authoritarianism for me, but not for thee. It's exactly how Gavin Newsom behaves all the time on everything. Your business is shut down. You need to stay at home. You need to follow the science. I'll be partying at the French Laundry at a fancy, what, like $300 a head dinner. Thank you very much. You need to wear a mask, especially your kids in school. That's the science. But I won't at the football game indoors photograph repeatedly, then I'll lie about it. Gavin Newsom does whatever the hell he wants and then uses all these little skirmishes just to bludgeon other people, whether it's politicians he doesn't like or sees as potential future competition or just forcing the little people into submission. This is how he operates his government, which might explain why an awful lot of people are leaving that state. All right, Gavin Newsom, and I observed this last week, I think it was, about how much time he spends attacking other governors in other states. Yeah, it was back on March 3rd, he was going after Tennessee. And I pointed out, this guy seems to spend most of his time trolling other governors, particularly of states people are moving to, not from, a phenomenon that must be confusing to him. Because so many people have taken off. Nate Hockman at National Review actually quantified some of this. He reported last year Gavin Newsom spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on ads attacking Republicans in other states. He tweets more about red states 
than California. In fact, over the last few weeks, nearly 60% of all Newsom tweets were about red states. This is what he's fixated on. Attacking other states, other governors, where people are actually going, flocking to, as opposed to flocking away from, like is the case in California. Los Angeles Times reporter just a few weeks ago that the exodus continues out of California. More than half a million people have left the state in the last two years alone. Before Gavin Newsom became governor, with his slick back hair and movie villain looks, California had never lost population in the history of the state, ever. Their population had always gone in one direction, up, up, and up. Then Newsom wins, starting in 2020, but then again in 2021, and then again in 2022, the population contracted out in California. It went down. They lost a house seat under the stewardship of Gavin Newsom. He's the guy provide, uh, prevailing and presiding over all of this. It was literally true that U-Haul ran out of U-Haul trucks and vehicles outbound from California. There were so many people trying to get out that U-Haul ran out of trucks. And you see neighboring states, but especially red states, welcoming those people with open arms. People can't afford to live there. They feel like the government does not have their back. A bunch of capricious edicts. The cost of living is astronomical. The quality of life is going down. Crime is a giant problem. As a matter of fact, Walgreens, since he's targeting Walgreens, trying to follow abortion laws in other states, Walgreens actually has been doing less business in California recently because they've been closing stores due to crime. There's been so much rampant, organized shoplifting and looting that Walgreens in the last couple of years has announced on multiple occasions the closure of stores because of crime in California that's out of control and happening with impunity. And the left-wing ethos and prosecutors out there have just let it run amok. So with all of this happening, right, there was that, that study that the Wall Street Journal reported about last year where they looked at mortality rates in the states plus economic outcomes, plus education, and keeping schools open versus closed. They combine those factors to rank all the states, 1 through 50, during the pandemic. So, like, mortality, education, economy combined. California, 47th. I think, actually, 48th out of 50. Only New York and New Jersey, other deep blue states, falling lower on the list. Florida, the boogeyman, the awful, awful place run by that awful, awful man, top 10 in the country. And number one among large states. And here's Ron DeSantis just minding his business, doing his job in Florida. Gavin Newsom can't stop thinking about this guy, tweeting about him and other Republican governors while people bleed out of that state by the hundreds of thousands. But don't worry, Gavin's got his eye on the ball making sure as many people are aborted as possible in the state of California and elsewhere. That's the priority. Abortion on demand for any reason, paid for by taxpayers, all the way through birth. 
Gavin wants to make sure that's his priority. He's making it crystal clear. Maybe part of the philosophy here is if people aren't born, they'll never have the opportunity to flee the state of California. We'll take a break. Just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for tuning in. You know, I was just mentioning in that last segment a lot of the crime out in California. And we've talked about it in Los Angeles. That place is just broken with their DA. It was so bad in San Francisco, they tossed out their left-wing DA in a recall election. Like a landslide election. This is part of a pattern. Whether it's Walgreens closing shops, which was our example in the last segment in California, or in other parts of the country, like Washington, D.C., where... Starbucks, actually Starbucks closed, what, more than a dozen stores all over the place, including California, because of crime. It was too dangerous to operate these stores. The one in Washington, D.C. was inside Union Station, the major rail hub of our nation's capital. Starbucks had to close. McDonald's closed a location in, like, a very busy area connected to the basketball and hockey arena in the middle of downtown D.C. Too dangerous Close that location. There is a wine store, a big one in D.C. They closed because of crime. Letters being written, just begging for help from law enforcement. Philadelphia, we talked about how there were Wawa locations of that convenience store and sandwich shop closing in Philly because of crime. And there's this from the New York Post. Walmart is going to close its remaining Portland, Oregon stores as city faces shoplifting crisis. They don't enforce the law in these places. And sometimes that gets people killed. We told you that horrible story about a woman's murder with her abuser let out over and over again, eventually killed her. Then on this type of thing, looting and shoplifting, it's so bad, Walmart's like, all right, we're out of Portland. We're just, we can't do this anymore. We're gone. Nike is begging Portland to crack down on this stuff. Nike, the big woke corporation, this is part of the beast that they help unleash. So enjoy that, Nike. Walmart's out of Portland. We'll break. We'll come back with Charlie Hurt next. Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue. It's the first hour of three here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast. Free of charge when the show is over. It's on demand every day. With us now is Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at the Washington Times and a Fox News contributor. Charlie, welcome back to the show. Great to see you, Guy. 
So I want to start with this. You're a Virginia guy. You spent a lot of time traveling the state of Virginia. Have you ever been, this might sound like a weird question, have you ever been to a giant, like, gas station store-type place called Bucky's? Uh, I have. Um, I don't think that there are any in Virginia right now. But Correct. if you go down, if you go south, um, it, they're they're kind of overwhelming, actually. Um, yes. I mean they're they're. I mean they, they have everything. If you're if you're low on deer corn, for example, you can go to Bucky's and get it. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of my friends though uh, complain about Bucky's because they don't cover uh, they don't sell ammo. So. Um, you know, maybe maybe there's a future where they can even expand even beyond what they already offer. Yeah, Bucky's Plus. I will tell you, I am always very low on deer corn, personally. But the reason I ask the question is I had never been to a Bucky's until last year. I was actually down doing a reporting trip at the border, did this show from the border for a couple of days. And my flight out of Texas was out of Austin. So we had to drive from the southern border up to Austin and on the way, we stopped at a Bucky's, and it was truly a magical place. That overwhelming is the right word that you used. They're huge in Texas. They or I think they originated in Texas, but they're now elsewhere in the South as well. There's a report out. There's a reason I asked you. There's a report out that Bucky's might be expanding into Virginia, with its first potential location on the I-64 interchange near Exit 211. And it just sort of got me excited that maybe. Bucky's could be coming sort of toward our neck of the woods. And then the next thing where my brain immediately went was the fact that In-N-Out Burger is finally moving east of the Mississippi River, and they're opening like their East Coast headquarters, if you will, in Tennessee. I just sort of wonder maybe as goes Bucky's, so goes In-N-Out. I'm just I'm holding out hope here, Charlie. Yeah, no, that's a that's a uh, that's a that's a interesting theory, and I think it's probably a smart one. I mean, sixty four. So that's right there along somewhere near where sixty four and ninety five meet. So if I mean, if as if there wasn't enough going on already, uh, right there on the that ninety five corridor where it hits uh, just south of Richmond, this uh, Bucky's would definitely. Uh, break the interchange. There's no doubt about that. Well, that, what I'm seeing is if it happens, they're talking about 74,000 square feet, which is a lot of square feet, Charlie. So I, just because you're a Virginia guy, I got to open with that here and see if you had heard any of that scuttlebutt. I'm not surprised that you've been to a Bucky's and perhaps you can go to one in your home state moving forward if this all goes through. Charlie, I want to talk to you about a few political issues, um, starting with Ron DeSantis in Florida seems to have some very good enemies, one of whom is Randy Weingarten, the teachers union boss who fired off kind of a deranged tweet about DeSantis. And it was widely criticized because it was filled with grammatical errors and misspellings. Uh, Again, this is also a woman who taught U.S. government who apparently has no idea how a bill becomes a law, as she made clear last week. But she said this in Uh, Her Twitter feed, quote, DeSantis should be fixated on the cost of living issues in Florida. Housing is unaffordable, home insurance even worse. But instead, he is ascending, meaning expanding, gun access, defunding, comma, public schools, comma, and banning everything he dislikes, teachers, journalists, and the vulnerable. Um, I had missed the part, I guess, where 
uh, DeSantis was banning teachers and journalists and the vulnerable, but that's what the teachers union boss asserted. The question that I have for you is, are you with me in that I'm a conservative who wants Randy Weingarten to remain the face of teachers unions forever because she is so incredibly unappealing and stupid? Yeah, no, that's great. It's a great point. Uh, and I uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, it's it's really amazing. And, and obviously, the, you know, the tweet itself, it's embarrassing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an embarrassing. It's an embarrassment that anybody, any uh, um, teacher we would have uh, or anyone representing teachers would be that functionally illiterate. But the other thing that I think is kind of interesting um, is that she's a perfect representation of of the teachers union. Where, you know, it, it you get to the point where, you know, everybody supports teachers. They want teachers to be they want to have good teachers and they want good schools. But but the teachers unions are so far beyond any of that. They're far more interested in partisan politics mm-hmm. than they are in like educating children. And so you have this idiot, illiterate tweet from her where she, you know, v- She's got a. She she has her hands full considering the state of education, public education, especially in our country today. But then then suddenly she's positioning herself as an expert on housing, and journalism, and insurance policies. It's like no. stick to what you're bad at before you get into other fields. <laughs> yes. You know. Yes, you're bad at already the the main thing that you're supposed to at least ostensibly be good at. So maybe just stick to that lane of failure, Randy. Uh, but she won't, and that's what I love about her. Uh, she she is incompetent in so many ways, uh, which is why I think that she's very valuable to her opponents and to supporters of civil rights issues like free uh, school choice and that sort of thing. Charlie Hurt, similarly but different, apparently, and I look, I never watched John Oliver, I guess. I used to see him occasionally when he was on The Daily Show before that show got really awful. Then I guess he's got his own show I'm not sure what network it's on. It might be streaming. I don't know. Maybe HBO. But John Oliver, I guess, uh, you know, does his screeds all the time, his his left-wing comedy or whatever. And he apparently spent like 20, 25 minutes just going off on Ron DeSantis uh, on his most recent show and, and just railed against the Florida governor. And, you know, like, fine, whatever. I, I paid no attention. I didn't see... Any clips of it, it's just not worth my time. But the Los Angeles Times wrote a whole thing about it because it's like, oh, comedian attacks Republican. This is news. Let's amplify it. So they wrote this whole story about John Oliver attacking DeSantis. The Times reached out to the DeSantis office in Florida for comment and put in the story that DeSantis' office did not respond, You know that, that they reached out and didn't respond. But the press secretary for Ron DeSantis put on Twitter, he's like, actually, I responded within an hour. And the ex- the entire extent of his quote was, John Oliver is irrelevant. And they didn't put that in the story. They said that they declined to comment. Eventually, he shamed them publicly, so they updated their story. But I just find it interesting that this is, first of all, the state of journalism right now in America. Second of all, and I want to ask maybe Howie Kurtz about this later as well, the DeSantis people have decided clearly – that overall the media is the opposition and they're not going to treat them with any sort of like faux respect. They're just going to treat them exactly the way they feel like they are treated by the media, including this type of thing. Just one very recent example 
What do you think of that strategy to basically broadcast mutual contempt for the press? And is that something that you think that DeSantis can really keep up, even if he starts running for president here at some point? Oh, I think without a doubt. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that I per- and you and I may, may sort of uh, differ on this to some degrees. Um, but one of the things, that, of course, that I've always loved about Donald Trump is his, you know, just his freewheeling, you know, roundhouse kicking, going after the media all the time. And I find it enormously entertaining. And I've spent uh, my entire adult life in the media business. So and I know how much they deserve that. Um, so I, I, I delight in it. Um, now, is it always? And I think it's very effective in a in a certain way. But then you run up against you, you, it has its limitations where it doesn't. It's not necessarily as effective as as it is entertaining. Um, I think that the DeSantis strategy in this department is highly effective, and it absolutely will is something that we, that can arm him uh, going forward. There's no reason in in our modern times with all the different ways to reach people. That you have to be beholden to certain sects sects of the media that are like unhinged, lying, dishonest, despicable, all these things. They're, they're not honest brokers. And so absolutely, and, I, and I, I, I have to say one of the most appealing things to me about uh, DeSantis is his uh, somewhat measured, more measured than, you know, I, of course, I'm, I'm, I, I want to be entertained as well. Um, but it's very effective and it absolutely can um can can you know he can run the the full race by by doing that without necessarily getting quite as much into the gutter as Donald Trump does with these people uh, even though I do I do relish that very much from Mr. Trump yeah, and we've talked about this many times. You absolutely love Trump. You've always loved Trump. The second he got involved, 2015, Charlie Hurt was like, where do I sign up? Uh, and it's just been, you know, this this uh, joyride for you ever since. Uh, we definitely don't always see eye to eye on that. But, you know, here we are. He's been running for president again now for months at this point. And very few people have gotten in yet. You know, Nikki Haley, really the only real candidate to get in so far. Pence, I guess, is going to get in. Maybe Pompeo, maybe Tim Scott. Everyone sort of waiting on DeSantis after this legislative session in Florida. So there's a lot of focus on Trump and DeSantis and all the things that Trump says about DeSantis every day and DeSantis not taking the bait or whatever. If you just take DeSantis out of the mix for now, because my guess is the earliest he would jump in and maybe start responding would be a couple months from now. What is your assessment of the early field and the emerging field and sort of handicap this for me, at least so far. What do you think of these folks? So I guess the the quickest things I would say, one is that that Nikki Haley seems to be more actually focused on somebody who's not in the race than is. Uh, A lot of her little barbs are directed more at DeSantis than they are um, at Trump. Uh, We haven't really seen anybody really go after Trump uh, for perhaps obvious reasons. Although, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy um, has laid out uh, uh, to me the most. You know, I don't think that you're going to beat Trump in the Republican primary by being sort of like the Larry Hogan type person or somebody that's the the, the half measure. The the Liz yeah, Cheney. Larry Hogan agreed by the work. way. Larry Hogan is like, yeah, right. that's true, right. and he's not running. 
And uh, but but if you listen to a lot of the stuff that Vivek Ramaswamy has been talking about, um, that is to me the lane where you can really get into Donald Trump's head and be more more um, both uh, problematic for Trump. Uh, because you're running kind of to the Trump of Trump, but you can also, and, but I, but I kind of like it because it is very uh, effective at, fo- you know, you know, fo- turning the focus of where re- Republican primary voters are. For example, um, you know, Ramaswamy has, is talking about how we need to do no more business with anybody in China, cut off all business, which is a pretty, pretty, that's a pretty strong statement, um, and it's a pretty tall order, and I don't. I don't, I don't know that I, – I don't even – I mean I like the idea of standing up to China and punishing China. I think we should punish China to the ends of the earth over what they did with COVID. But um, but in any event, it's it's to the Trump of Trump. And, you know, Even Trump doesn't say we need to cut off all business with China. Um, but I think it's very effective in terms of, of um, getting the attention that somebody like Ramaswamy wants, but it's also uh, effective at – um, remind you know, sort of softening up the, those targets of of issues that I think are very important to voters. I mean, one of the biggest things Democrats and Republicans completely have missed, and Donald Trump capitalized on this very well in 2015-2016, is this disdain for China. People really hate China. They really, really, and, and that's not a Republican thing. Uh, that's across the board. Um, and uh, Trump. Trump did a good job of exploiting that, and it looks like Ramaswamy is wanting to maybe take it a step far, step farther. Since you mentioned COVID, there, Charlie, last question: just the revelation that the Energy Department says, okay, actually, it uh, looks like this lab leak thing was real. FBI agrees. Uh, you know, Dr. Fauci. There's a revelation that we talked about just yesterday that came out that. Uh, he had commissioned or at least was heavily involved on some level with a, a study that was designed to try to disprove the lab leak theory, and then he was citing it from the White House podium like he had nothing to do with it. Uh, it just seems like a lot of the folks who are invested for one reason or another in swatting down the lab leak theory for a very long time and calling it dangerous and racist and disinformation, all the things that they say, I mean, I guess maybe at this point I'm so cynical that I can't imagine that we'll ever really see a lot of accountability for anyone, but it's at least on some level gratifying seeing even very belatedly some egg on the faces of some of these folks. And, and I hope the Republicans can drag them up, you know, under oath in front of the cameras and ask tough questions in, in a reasonable way to really turn the screws to at least some of these people. Yeah, no, and I think you're exactly right about that. It, it, it's, it comes down to in a reasonable way, and I agree with you completely. Look, the, the, what, what, what a lot of people did around the world, but also in our country, um, uh, to you know, we, we don't know the lives they cost. We, we can begin to calculate the amount of money it cost, the damage it did to children, and the damage it did to families. Uh, it's you know, it's it's. It's we're talking really serious stuff, and and it is vitally important that Republicans uh, pursue that stuff uh, forcefully and unrelentingly and all the way to the end. But it has to be done in a nonpartisan. It can't it can't be 
an effort to score political points. It yeah, has just like to be... all the grandstanding and the preening, like that's what politicians do all the time. There's so much good substance to get them on. Stick to the substance and make it serious, and I hope they can do that. It needs to happen. Got to leave it there. Charlie Hurt from the Washington Times Fox News contributor. Charlie, thank you. Thank you, buddy. And maybe I'll meet you at Bucky's one of these days. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. If you're listening on the broadcast, a new jam by Pink, Trustfall. I'm into it lately. Lesson to the Vice President of the United States, admittedly. She's out there doing whatever she does. It's uh, sort of unclear. She's the borders are. We know how that's going. I guess she was in Colorado yesterday, and she told a story filled with much laughter, of course, about her childhood. Now, this is cut 25. I'm sure this happened. I'm going to share with you a very simple story, which is that I went home one day and I said, well, what's... Why are conservatives bad, Mommy? Because I thought we were supposed to conserve things. (laughs) I couldn't reconcile it. Now I can. (laughs) Yes, hilarious stuff as usual. Similarly, I was at the grocery store the other day with my non-existent toddler. And she looked at me and she said, Daddy, why are progressives trying to ruin America and destroy the Constitution? And then everyone clapped. Similar energy. Less hysterical force laughter. Boy, she's never going to get better, is she? Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. You don't want to go anywhere. Chris Carr, Attorney General in Georgia, on the Antifa lawlessness there. You don't want to miss it. Stay here. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday, broadcasting from Evanston, Illinois, just north of Chicago. Very excited to be here. Very excited to have you all along with me. Between 3 and 6 Eastern every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast always free, on demand, no charge to you when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social at GuyBensonShow. That's Twitter. That's also Instagram. Fox News alert. Tough day on Wall Street. The Dow falling substantially in the red by 574 points at the closing bell ending the day at 32,856. With us now is Chris Carr. He's the attorney general of the great state of Georgia. We have a lot of listeners down there, especially in our affiliate 106.3 Extra based in Atlanta. And, Mr. Attorney General, it's great to have you here on the show. Thanks for joining us. Guy, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I was pretty appalled watching some of the footage that came out over the weekend and then yesterday of these ongoing sort of Antifa left-wing domestic terrorism attacks against what they're calling Cop City, a police and fire training center, the outskirts of Atlanta. They've been trying to stop it. They can't do it through democracy, so they've been trying to 
stop it or delay it through violence and vandalism and other crimes. And seems like there was an escalation on Sunday. And some of the footage is very upsetting with sort of rocket-type devices being shot at officers, things being set on fire. Uh, What is the response of the state of Georgia to what's happening? Well, Guy, the response is the same thing. You were appalled. I was appalled. Uh, Most of the people that live in the state of Georgia were appalled. Uh, The response is that, uh, you know, we're not Oregon and we're not Washington. You cannot come to the state of Georgia. You can't throw Molotov cocktails at police officers and construction vehicles. You can't throw rocks through windows. You can't shoot police officers and not be held accountable. And so just in this latest incident, we've had 23 individuals that have been charged with domestic terrorism. In fact, they've got their first appearance hearing uh, now in DeKalb County. Uh, That goes along with the 18 that have been arrested in December and January, also charged with domestic terrorism. And, and, and Guy, you make the, the point here that you just mentioned. This is a public safety training center. It's where not just police officers, but firefighters and first responders and those that we need at the most important and urgent times of our lives, we need them to be trained. And our community responded and said they're going to come together and put this this facility together, not just so officers will be safe, but the community will be safe. It is just perplexing to me that this has become the issue that it has. My understanding is there were a couple dozen people, almost three dozen people arrested just after these clashes, if you can call them that, over the weekend. A good number of these people, and this was also the case right around the holidays and and shortly after the new year, a lot of these agitators, these agitators, these violent criminals aren't from Georgia, right? They're coming in from other places around the country and even around the world. Is that right? Exactly right. This weekend, only two were from Georgia, two of the 23 that were charged with domestic terrorism. Uh, They came from New York and Massachusetts and Tennessee and Utah and Colorado and Colorado and France. And so what this says is this is a a well-organized national group. Now it's an international group. Uh, And they aren't interested in peaceful protest. Guy, protesters use words. Mm-hmm. Rioters use violence. The first is protected by the First Amendment, and even if you disagree with me, even if you're saying things I don't agree with or approve of, I'll defend your right to peacefully protest. That's in the First Amendment of the Constitution. But again, the minute you start coming in here and you start throwing rocks and lighting uh, police cars and, and vehicles on fire and doing the things that we saw from a violent perspective, those are crimes. Right. And in Georgia – We have a domestic terrorism charge. If you're using violence to to, uh, disrupt infrastructure and and destroy property for the the purpose of changing public policy, that's domestic terrorism, and it carries a 5- to 35-year sentence if you're convicted. Yeah, it's uh, political violence motivated by politics, as you say. And, uh, you know, I guess if these people want to fly or drive to Georgia from Massachusetts or New York or Colorado or, as you pointed out, Canada or France – Uh, Maybe they won't ever see the outside of a Georgia prison cell, at least for a very long time, if ever. That's a choice they're making. I think cracking down on these people is absolutely essential. It sounds like that's what you guys are doing. I did see one of the people who was arrested and charged is a lawyer at a left-wing organization based in Washington, D.C. That organization, I'll talk about them a little bit coming up in the next segment. But they're defending their guy. They're saying, you know, he was just there as, as an observer and they're blaming the police, saying this is a heavy-handed tactics. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, he'll have his day in court. 
I think that's so, a fair enough point to, to make. If you feel free to to elaborate, I mean, how much evidence do you guys have? Because some of it we've seen, right? Some of this stuff, a lot of it is on camera. It, it, and, and guy can't get into the specifics. Obviously, we're going to, you know, the way our system, the rule of law works is we'll have to go to open court and present evidence, and that's the right way to do it, and that's exactly what we will do. And even though the folks on the left don't believe in or care about or undermine the rule of law, we do care about it in the state of Georgia. But he, here's another point, too, guy. You mentioned that folks have come from all over the country, around the world. If the, today this is about a law enforcement training center in Atlanta, Georgia. Tomorrow, if these folks are successful, if they're successful in shutting this down and making this project go away, which we have no intention of allowing that to happen, we are committed to this program to making sure, again, not just law enforcement are safe, but the communities. But if it's not today, tomorrow it's in your community. It's in, the, it's in somebody else's backyard. It may not be a public safety training center. It may be an economic development project, or it may be somebody these individuals just don't agree with. That's why it has to stop here. And again, we are. This is the state of Georgia. We are not like some of these other places that look the other way and allow folks to get away with it. We're committed to making sure the rule of law is upheld and these folks are held accountable. It does seem like a lot of people in the media are just sort of looking the other way, not covering this very heavily. I know the White House was asked about. It. They're like, "Oh, we're not really following it. We'll get back to you." And then there's for those on the left who are following it. There's so much dishonesty. I mean, back in the last round or the previous round of these spasms. Uh, a man was uh, shot and killed by police after he shot an officer, and he was held up by several members of Congress like some sort of innocent martyr. It, it was kind of amazing that people feel like they can get away with that. Well, again, I can't get into the specifics of that you know, particular issue, but, but it, it, it has been – again, it's been incredibly frustrating to see uh, – the, the way that this has been portrayed. But again, uh, we're committed to the rule of law. We're committed to allowing the system to, to the, the process to take its course. And, but, but again, we're not going to allow folks to come to this state. And again, it's, you made the point that this public safety training center went through the democratic process. It was a part yep. of the yes. mayoral race in Atlanta. It got a, a fair hearing, and the city council voted, and we're going forward. And again, our, right. the our folks, process worked. The process worked. That's exactly right. And, and again, remember, after the, the, the uh, summer of 2020 with social justice unrest, for those on the left that weren't talking about defunding the police, they talked about better uh, trained police officers. Well, here in Atlanta, we responded. We yeah. want a state-of-the-art facility that's going to keep everybody safe. Yeah, oh, we want the police trained better. Well, no, these people want the police dead and or defunded, and they don't want them trained better. They don't want them trained at all. And they're using violence to try to impose that on an unwilling populace, uh, and it just cannot stand. And obviously, based on your comments, it won't. I just want to let you uh, comment on one more thing, Mr. Attorney General, something else happening in your state involving street gangs. I know that's been a very big issue, especially in Atlanta and a few other communities. Governor Kemp uh, and, and the state of Georgia trying to pass legislation to make it harder and uh, like enhance penalties if adults recruit children into street gangs the bill passed but over partisan objections from democrats just 30 seconds what happened there well think of it this way guy who are most often terrorized by gangs lower income racially diverse and immigrant populations all georgians deserve to be safe and it's republicans that are coming to the defense of all georgians Adults are recruiting kids. They're getting younger and younger. What we've said, and by the way, we've got the best governor in America as far as I'm concerned. He said, you come after our children, we're coming after you, and that's exactly what we're doing here. 
Yeah, but for some reason, every Senate Democrat in Georgia decided to vote no against that. It's pretty wild. We're following all of it on The Guy Benson Show. Attorney General Chris Carr of Georgia, our guest. Sir, we appreciate your time today. Guy, thank you. Appreciate it. You bet. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Well, we were just talking about the situation in Georgia and the cop city attacks from these terrorists. One of the terrorists that has been arrested and charged at least with domestic terrorism is an employee, a lawyer, at a group called the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a left-wing organization. And very much in keeping with how the news media tends to do its business and conduct itself, it is a left-wing organization that is cited constantly by the press as an expert group or some sort of authority on hate organizations in the United States and extremism. So when journalists want information or quotes or resources on quote-unquote hate groups, they go to this group, the Southern Poverty Law Center which is not just left-leaning, but very, very left, as are the vast majority of journalists. We've talked about that many times over. There's plenty of data to back it up. They want their own opinions reflected back to them, but from a different source so they can then put their thoughts into someone else's mouth and report that as the news. That is one of the biggest tricks that they use, right, finding experts – who agree with them and will affirm what they believe and what they want to say without it being just like overtly editorializing. But it's backdoor editorializing. And the SPLC has a very checkered history and I don't think should be granted the type of expert authority status that they are. And they've had a few issues through the years, including all sorts of problems internally in the ranks and allegations. You can Google some of that stuff. Another example that comes to mind, which, again, I'm not sure it's fair to blame them directly, but under the rules of the left, obviously they're complicit or responsible under their rules on their side. Years ago during the Obama administration, there was this radical left-wing extremist who decided that He was angry about people who opposed LGBT rights, and he was going to go make them pay. So he went to the Southern Poverty Law Center, found their map of hate groups in Washington, D.C., used that as part of his plot to go and murder as many people as he could at the Family Research Council, a socially conservative group in D.C. It was a premeditated mass murder that he was prepared to carry out. He came with weapons. He also came with Chick-fil-A, because the plan was to shoot these people dead, these defenseless people in their office, for their ideas, and then to smear their dead bodies with Chick-fil-A because of the you know alleged Chick-fil-A connection to anti-gay whatever. That was a big thing for a while years ago. So that was his plan, aided directly by the Southern Poverty Law Center and their hate group map in D.C. Thank God there was a security guard who was suspicious of this person 
and was able to stop him, not before getting shot, if I recall correctly. But that happened in D.C., and it was barely a blip on the national stage. The press corps covered it as little as possible and moved right on because that's what they do. Like the congressional shooting on the baseball field. Like the extent to which that would have been a massive national crisis with endless denunciations of right-wing rhetoric and a lack of civility and all the things that they always do, whether they have the facts on their side or not, when they feel like they can blame some political violence on the right, that would have been a 10 out of 10 national emergency. And instead, it was like maybe a 2 out of 10 and disappeared real fast because it was the wrong type of perpetrator and the wrong type of victims for the narrative. Same thing with that Family Research Council would be mass murder. And again, I don't think it's fair to say the Southern Poverty Law Center created a target on this group and therefore they're responsible. But that is exactly what the left does and says all the time. Now you think about the Sarah Palin blame. Look, I'm not a giant Sarah Palin fan, but they tried to blame her for the Gabby Gifford shooting based on nothing. Right? Sarah Palin had some, like, list of congressional seats she was targeting that had crosshairs on them on a map to try to get people to donate and win some elections. And the press just decided that's why this psycho went and tried to kill her. Turns out, wasn't true. No connection whatsoever. The guy was mentally ill, had no political bent at all, had never seen the Sarah Palin map. But that didn't stop them from creating a giant, huge issue out of it where every Republican was hounded into condemning certain rhetoric. And we all had to do this thing where everyone sat together at the State of the Union because of right wing rhetoric being out of control. They just created that out of whole cloth, blamed it on Sarah Palin. By that standard, the Southern Poverty Law Center caused that attack. But, of course, those rules don't get applied evenly. It should go without saying. And yet I remember these things, and I point them out because I think it is a manifestation of some of the worst, most egregious bias that we experience in the mainstream press. So I just went off on that little diversion because the Southern Poverty Law Center tends to somewhat fly under the radar screen for even a lot of conservatives. So I wanted to remind you of that episode and just also say you had this lawyer arrested for domestic terrorism involved in this like setting up fires and firing rockets at cops and all of that stuff down in Georgia. And this organization, the SPLC, defending their employee, saying that it was unfair that he was arrested. He was just a legal observer. He's saying that the arrest is not evidence of a crime. They're saying this is law enforcement's fault. Heavy-handed response to the protesters. Have you seen the videos? They're shooting rockets at officers. They're setting equipment on fire. And the SPLC, you look at their Twitter feed, for example, they're taking the side of the domestic terrorists while claiming that their lawyer was just there, not one of those terrorists. Just He was just there to observe. Okay. What about the other ones? People like throwing Molotov cocktails. SPLC is effectively taking their side against the police, but they're the ones who are supposed to lecture us in a million different news stories about what constitutes hate and extremism in America. In some ways, it seems like they are experts, just not in the way that they think they are or the media treats them as they are. 
So just like a little extra footnote to the situation playing out in Georgia, featuring the Southern Poverty Law Center and the racket they've got going on and the way that the media so often uses that exact group to launder their left-wing bias, at least through the prism of someone else's opinion for the purposes of journalism, quote-unquote. It's a pet peeve, obviously. Wanted to bring that to you. When we come back, Howie Kurtz of Media Buzz, he'll stop by. Don't miss that interview. It's next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Just past the midway point on the Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. We are joined once again by Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. FNC. His podcast is Media Buzz Meter. You can follow him on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, it's always great to have you here. Welcome back. Nice to be back. Let's talk about 2024. I saw your column talking about how a lot of the candidates who are currently running for president or are rumored strongly to be jumping in, they're kind of waltzing along here without taking real shots at the front runners, and especially on the Republican side, the front runner. I kind of wonder how long that can last, this sort of detente that seems to be all flowing in one direction right now because the front runners happy to take shots at everyone else. They're not saying much about him at all at this point. What do you make of it? Just not saying much of him at all. They're just taking these veiled shots without mentioning his name. It's like patty cake. And I understand that uh, these contenders and potential contenders, you know, don't want to alienate the MAGA base. They'd like to beat Trump in a kind of a bloodless fight. But it doesn't work that way. And so right. I, I just was sort of stringing together these examples. Uh, for instance, Nikki Haley uh, is asked how her policy is different from Trump. She seems like a pretty reasonable question to ask. Uh, and, and she ducks it and says, you guys are obsessed with me talking to him. Well, yes, because you're running against your former boss and have to beat him for the nomination. She says, I don't kick sideways, I kick forward. I don't even know what that means. Uh, Mike Pompeo uh, actually said at CPAC uh, that we have, he's against following celebrity leaders with their own brand of identity politics, those with fragile egos who refuse to acknowledge reality. So when he's on Fox News Sunday, uh, Shannon Breen, being the tough interrogator that she is, saying, who are you talking about with fragile egos? And he goes <laughs> off to just completely duck it. Uh, and even Mike Pence, who has, of course, criticized uh, Trump uh, over January 6th when his life and that of his family was endangered, uh, talks about the accomplishments of the Trump-Pence administration. So it just makes you wonder if they are, if it's too clever by half, meaning that they look passive and weak, and he defines them before they can define themselves. Well, we just talked yesterday here on the show, Howie, about how a lot of people that were thought to be running have ended up not running, including Governor Hogan of Maryland, almost every U.S. senator that was in the mix, they've ducked out. So that's one change between 2015 and now. One of the dynamics that hasn't really changed is at least up to this point, a lot of these candidates seem to be following the, I would say, very flawed assumption that a lot of the rivals did back then, eight years ago, that, you know, ultimately you don't want to take on Trump too aggressively or directly. You want to keep his supporters in play. 
I don't think that they're laboring under the delusion that he's going to eventually just implode and go away. That obviously didn't work last time, and it was a very bad assumption that a lot of people premised their campaigns on, but they still were reluctant to go after him in a way that was meaningful because I guess the theory was at some point when he falters, I want to make sure that his supporters aren't mad with me. I mean, we've been through this, Howie. It doesn't work. By the time you saw some of the really aggressive, sharp attacks coming against Trump last time around, it was kind of already too late. He was rolling. He had won some contests. And there was still a splintered field. I just would love to understand the theory behind some of this, especially because it's not hypothetical, as you were saying. Like, we've kind of seen this movie before. Maybe it's not the exact same movie, but it's an eerily similar sequel in some ways. Thinking And, you know, last time there were 16 other candidates and Trump knocked off the whole Republican establishment. This time there's going to be a smaller field. As you say, many people are not running. Uh, Hogan says, you know, if there are too many people running, you know, you're practically like handing Donald Trump the nomination. And then you have someone like Ron DeSantis is in a different category because he was asked by our colleague uh, Brian Kilmeade, in an interview last week, or what do you have to say about all these attacks by Trump? He says, oh, it's silly season, and that's who he is. DeSantis' campaign right now is the Florida legislative session. Uh, he has a, a GOP-controlled legislature that is going to pass all these bills that he's going to run on through the end of May. So he doesn't want to get, uh, and these include tightening libel laws, concealed carry, all kinds of culture war stuff, diversity and what's taught in schools. Uh, And it's probably a smart strategy for him. So he doesn't want to get down in the mud right now with the acknowledged mud wrestler champion of all time. But again, uh, how long can you play that out before you're totally on the defensive? Right. And to that point, The State of the State address was today down in Florida. DeSantis was laying out his legislative agenda. He will dominate that agenda over the next couple of months. He's already been putting some of those points up on the scoreboard. But just to make it crystal clear, near the beginning of the speech, he pointed at that proverbial scoreboard like, hey, look at these results. Here's what he said. One example, cut 26. My duty under the Constitution is to inform the legislature concerning the condition of the state and to recommend measures in the public interest. Well, as we used to do in the military, here's the bluff, the bottom line up front. Florida is number one. Florida is the fastest growing state in the nation. We rank number one for net in-migration. We rank number one in the nation for new business formations. We are number one in economic growth amongst large states. Florida has more people employed today than before the pandemic. Our unemployment rate is one of the lowest on record, and it is significantly lower than the national average. And of course, as many of you know in this room, the last two years, we've seen the largest budget surpluses in the history of the state of Florida. One of many big applause lines for DeSantis. So he's building the case about what they've done in Florida. The last chapter of his new book that he's selling right now, The Courage to be Free, is entitled Make America Florida. Obviously, if and when he gets into this race, Howie, that's going to be his focus. And I think it's a really good story to tell. And you'll have probably a few more points up there on the board to point to by, let's say, May or June. However, at some point, he can't just play nice with Trump, 
not respond and hope to get his supporters on side. There's going to have to be some back and forth. My guess is he's capable of it, and he's been thinking a lot about how to do it. He probably just wants to wait until he's an actual candidate in the race. So I guess the approach, I guess I'm agreeing with you, his approach makes more sense because there would be an expiration date, namely when he gets in. You would think this strategy would then pivot. It would turn, whereas some of the other people, it's like, what are you guys waiting for? Yeah. Well, give me that climate. I'll have the largest in my in migration, too. But, um, look, he's got a lot to brag about. He won this huge landslide. Uh, but the thing is that he is untested on the national stage, particularly given his uh, hostile relationship with both the national media and the local media. And we can talk about that if you like. But yes. so, uh, you, you know, a lot of people remember Scott Walker. I mean, they look great on paper, and it turns out. I mean, some people are saying he's not the most warmest guy, he's not the most likable guy. Um, he, people have to feel comfortable uh, with their president. But I, I'm agreeing with you that you know having a record to run on is an advantage that a governor has that. Uh, a senator or a congressman doesn't have, and it's funny, it reminds me of 1992 when Bill Clinton was first running for president, former governor of Arkansas, of course, and the negative ends against him by the Republicans were, he'll do for America what he did for Arkansas, meaning bad stuff. Yeah, and obviously the American people had other plans and other ideas back then. DeSantis is still actively governing. That's the focus over these next couple of months. And then it's like, okay, the test that you were just talking about is going to come inevitably at some point. And I know his supporters will say he's been tested hard by the national press now for years. I mean, he has been under the microscope. They've been shooting at that guy like he's a presidential candidate almost since the moment he won that governorship, and especially during COVID and beyond. So he's been through that fire. He's been through the gauntlet many times. That's still different than proving yourself to voters on the stump you know, retail politics. Is he not warm enough? All that stuff will come to the fore at some point, including, and this is the question that I want to ask you, Howie, some more tests when it comes to the mainstream press. Because right now, what we have seen from Team DeSantis is almost completely a blackout when it comes to all outlets that are not Fox and a few others and then right-leaning outlets, explicitly right-leaning outlets as well, Their attitude is the mainstream press has made clear that they are opposition. We are going to treat them as such, as our opposition. We are going to give them no extra credibility or access. In fact, we're going to do just the opposite. And it seems to have worked pretty well for him. He will take lots of questions, generally from reporters at press conferences, but not in sit-down interviews, nothing like that. How long is that sustainable, Howie, if he's going to be running for president? Well, first of all, in terms of the national media scrutiny, everything you said was right, but now multiply times 50 when you're in a campaign where you're on the stump every day. And I thought it was notable that in blowing off CPAC, Ron DeSantis, this was probably a good move, went to the Reagan Library, gave a speech, and then he left. He didn't you know, work the crowd. He doesn't seem to enjoy the retail politics aspect of it all that much. And you can't. 
I mean, you can do it. You can try, but you're giving up a tool that Donald Trump, for all the hostility back and forth, he loved using the press as a foil. Uh, you're giving up a tool if you're not going to be sitting down with the big networks, if you're not going to be sitting down with the big papers. Uh, and they may be under the illusion that, that that will fly in a national campaign. But even if it, it helps with a Republican um, primary electorate, it just seems like it's it's you know it's disarmament. But he does punch back, and there's a legion of examples uh, of that score. Howie Kurtz, I want to ask you about the president of the United States. It was announced that he will be embarking on a West Coast fundraising swing ahead of an expected reelection launch. I guess this is what we're doing. He's going to run again. Um, they've been waiting, but now he's going to go out there asking for money and that sort of thing. Uh, That's interesting, just from a 24 standpoint. It's also quite the juxtaposition. This is a president who has still not gone to East Palestine, Ohio. He's gone to Ukraine, which I supported, but didn't go to Ohio, where Americans have been hurting and are still hurting. Huge mistake, I think. And now it's like, all right, off to the glitzy Hollywood fundraisers and that whole circuit. I get it. It's part of politics, but... Here are these folks in rural Ohio saying, "Okay, I guess the commander in chief can't be bothered to show up. In fact, Biden, when asked, couldn't remember if he had spoken to the mayor of the town. I just wonder what the thought process is inside the White House, because it's pretty glaring. My analysis is he's just got his back up. The press has asked him so many times, when you're going, well, I'm going to go eventually, never actually commits to it. And look, and certainly you don't want to go uh, to the scene of environmental disaster, you know, in the first few days because the president comes with his big entourage and it can interfere with, you know, rescue and other efforts. Why he – he saw the value, the great symbolic value of going to Kiev. Why he is so resistant to this, I think the press has kind of created this, and Buttigieg has faced this as well, and even belatedly went the day after Trump, um, that if you don't go, you don't care. Well, politics is about optics. And people there, who happen it happens to be an area with mostly Trump voters, have the impression that you know they're considered flyover country and that Washington doesn't really care. And President Biden could have taken care of this a long time ago before he goes off to uh, raise money for his um, obvious campaign, which will be, I think, announced in just a few weeks. And the thing is, Howie, I can't help but assume, not just wonder, but assume if this afflicted community, when it comes to the derailment and the environmental disaster, if it had taken place in, let's say, Georgia or Arizona or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania even, get the sense Joe Biden would have been there. Hmm. But he hasn't gone to Ohio, which has gotten redder and redder. There is a sort of an ugly political element to this that at least people might read into it. And Biden obviously hasn't done all that much to disabuse us of at least wondering out loud if something like that might be the case. Well, I think it's more of a focus on big cities. If this had happened, uh, you know, in, in suburban New York, I mean, all the networks would have been there. The media also botched it and did a terrible job, didn't care about it at all in the first uh, 10 days, to say the least. But Biden's actually got a bigger problem than East Palestine, and that is most of his party does not want him to run again. Every poll shows this, all these stories about, well, you know, privately Democratic officials, you know, half of them who are, you know, dying to run, I hope Biden doesn't, although he's clearly going to, um, uh, 
think that he, he, you know, you know the math, it would be 86 at the end of the second term. They don't want him to run, and they're fueling these stories, hoping somehow either that some Democrat, some younger Democrat will get in, risk the wrath of the party, and maybe force Biden out of the race. That seems like a long shot. Or just that he will, you know, read the tea leaves and said, I should declare victory and, as a one-term president. Uh, and I, it's an extraordinary situation. He's the incumbent president of the United States, lives in the White House, and yet – most of his party, despite the fact that he's had a few good months with the trip to Kiev, with the midterms, with the State of the Union, do not want Joe Biden to run again. Yep. And by the way, you mentioned that the press, in your estimation, had done a poor job covering East Palestine, especially in the early going, silence for a week and a half. I don't think it's coincidental that when the silence finally ended in the press, that's when the transportation secretary's silence also happened to end, coinciding Right along the same timeline, once the headlines started getting bad, then the public acknowledgments and the tweets started, then the pressure built, and then, what, 10 or 20 days later, finally Buttigieg shows up there. It was just a, a bad look all around. I saw the CNN headline that Buttigieg is now starting to rethink how he does this job. And our colleague Katie Pavlich on this show yesterday said, what exactly did he think the job was, you have to wonder. Fair question. Howie Kurtz, media buzz every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. Check that out. You can also listen to his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, on Twitter, at Howard Kurtz. Howie, thank you. Talk to you soon here and on TV. Great to talk to you, about Guy. The Guy Benson Show, back right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. This is a soundbite from earlier. The D.C. police chief talking about recidivism and crime in Washington, D.C., an amazing, disturbing statistic. Listen to cut three. What we got to do, if we really want to see homicides go down, is keep bad guys with guns in jail. Because when they're in jail, they can't be in community shooting people. So when people talk about what we're going to do different or what we should do different, what we need to do different, that's the thing that we need to do different. We need to keep violent people in jail. Right now, the average homicide suspect, the average homicide suspect has been arrested 11 times prior to them committing a homicide. That is a problem. Yep. The average homicide suspect in D.C. had been arrested 11 times prior to the murder that they commit. So arrested and put back out on the street over and over again. This is how woke prosecution goes, whether it's the prosecutors and or the judges. And this is what the D.C. City Council wanted to make even worse by reducing criminal penalties for gun crime and carjackings even more. And now they're kind of like, oh, let's back away from it and withdraw it because we don't want Congress getting involved. I mean, the horse is out of the barn. They have done this already. They made this the policy in D.C. By the way, one more stat. We have already hit 100 carjackings year to date in D.C. We're just over two months into the new year, 100 carjackings already. One of the crimes for which penalties would be softer under the insane decrees of the city council. And these people seriously want to be a new state. It's incredible. Absolutely not. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Oh, boy. A bizarre, crazy story that we will share with you as soon as we come back. Don't go anywhere.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show in Evanston, Illinois, home of Northwestern University, where I'm speaking tonight. Glad to have you all here. Very cool to be broadcasting from my college town. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. That's GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free on demand. Other options there, FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. Or at Guy P. Benson, I should say, and or Guy P. Benson. That's my personal handle on those platforms. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. I might be tempted to have one in honor of my own birthday, as a matter of fact, which is today. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. All right, well, someone sent me this story earlier, and occasionally there's a story that is so bonkers that it just needs to be shared, a story that needs to be told aloud, and this is one of them. It may not be the most burning story in American politics. It may not be hyper-relevant, even to the member of Congress that it mentions, but it's a doozy, and it comes from the Washington Free Beacon. And I give them immense credit for even managing to chase this down. I have no idea how they ended up landing on this story. Did they get a tip? Did they have some sort of inkling or intuition? I have no idea. But you might recall, we talked about it just recently, that Congresswoman Cori Bush, Democrat, Missouri, member of the squad, one of the most radical and extreme members of Congress on the left, she just recently married one of her private security guards, which is a heartwarming tale about a woman who wants to defund the police for everyone else, all of her constituents, but she and her campaign have the means to employ a whole phalanx of private security, armed, of course, to protect her. So if you're her, that's a pretty good gig. You're protected, got these guys around with guns, one of them, you decide, is the love of your life, And if you're anyone else out there, then tough luck. She'd like to defund the police in your neighborhood. Well, she has her own private police force, one of whom she's now married to. But it's not just one security guard. There's more than one. And the Free Beacon managed to uncover the identity of one of these other security guards. In fact, the highest paid security guard in the entourage of Congresswoman Cori Bush. And I just want to add, you know, not taking anything away from her marriage, congratulations. I almost said Mazel Tov last time, but you know how she feels about that, as does the squad in general. So, you know, didn't want to go down that path, given some of their proclivities that, in fact, will come up in this very story in the Washington Free Beacon. Headline, meet the anti-Semitic spiritual guru on Corey Bush's payroll. This is one hell of a lead. He claims he can summon tornadoes at will, cause earthquakes with his hate, and conduct blood rituals to bring ruin upon his enemies. 
an intergalactic master of psychic self-defense born 109 trillion years ago. His days, he says, are now spent tending to his crops and spreading anti-Semitic conspiracies. And once you read those sentences from Andrew Kerr at the Free Beacon, you're compelled to read on, and so I will. Nathaniel Davis III also happens to be Congresswoman Cori Bush's close friend and her highest-paid private security guard. Davis has earned over $137,000, providing, quote, security services for Bush since 2020, according to FEC filings, the latest of which showed disbursements of $5,000 in December of last year. Using dozens of social media posts, including photos and videos that show Davis with Bush, the Washington Free Beacon has confirmed that Davis is, in fact, a St. Louis, Missouri spiritual guru known as Aha Sen Pianki, who teaches classes on how to read minds, summon mythical beings, and maintain urban gardens to avoid having to buy food from Jews. What a character this is. Davis, a former member of the vehemently anti-Semitic New Black Panther Party, is a natural fit for Bush, the story says. Bush has a history of associating herself with anti-Semites. She spent years working with anti-Israel activist Naveen Ayesh, who has said she wants to burn Jews alive. A vocal supporter of the anti-Israel BDS movement, Bush is a close ally of her fellow squad member, anti-Semitic Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minnesota. Birds of a feather, etc., I would just note. Similarly, Bush has spent years working as a faith healer. So this is stuff I didn't know. This is not her bodyguard that we're talking about. This is her now. Congresswoman Bush has spent years working as a faith healer for a religious sect that claims the power to resurrect the dead and cure deadly maladies through prayer. The head pastor of Bush's church told the Free Beacon in 2021 that he cured Bush's severe case of COVID with a phone call. Nor is Davis the only eyebrow-raising security guard on Bush's payroll. The congresswoman last week announced that she had married another of her handsomely compensated protectors, which we mentioned earlier. Can we just pause for a second? I did not know that Cori Bush has called herself a faith healer and that she claimed that her COVID was cured over a phone call from her pastor slash guru, who I guess also has the power to resurrect the dead. I mean, that's, you know, big if true. When Davis, who is the uh, faith guru bodyguard guy, who did not return requests for comment, is not protecting the congresswoman, he spends his time teaching St. Louis and its black community to grow their own food so they can liberate themselves from a genocidal Jewish cabal that runs the world. Okay. Quote, I'm going to come teach the people how to survive. It's when I came to this planet for in this lifetime, Davis said, this is in 2020 on Facebook Live, I'm 109 trillion years old in this galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. He got the name of the galaxy right. right we can confirm that. Davis has advanced a number of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, including a belief that the Rothschild family, quote, runs a Western Hemisphere, quote, runs the Western Hemisphere and unleashed the COVID-19 pandemic to murder 99% of the human population. 
I mean, swing and a miss, Rothschild. Sorry. Were they collaborating with the Chinese? Is that something we're not allowed to joke about? I don't know. He's also a proponent of QAnon, according to a Facebook post he shared in 2018. So this guy really probably hasn't met a single conspiracy theory that he doesn't like, by the looks of it. And maybe Cori Bush had no idea about any of this when she hired him, or maybe just the opposite. I know where I'd put my money on that one. Quote, you've got the global elite looking to kill every last one of us. They want to wipe out half the population of the planet, he said. So it seems like his theory has fluctuated between 50% of the population that they're trying to kill versus 99%. So she might send this over to PolitiFact, and they might find this to be like uh, half true or something like that because he's a Democrat. It's unclear how Bush and Davis met or when, but the congresswoman's personal Facebook page shows that she is friends with Ahad Davis Zadok L, one of Davis's Facebook accounts. There, he claims to be a member of the priesthood of the Sun Moon sect. And his various other platforms are riddled with references to that sect. And they've got all this stuff embedded, too. It's not made up. It's all right here in his own words. Davis has also claimed a number of supernatural abilities, I mean, of course, including the ability to summon hurricanes, levitate, and retrieve winning lottery numbers from the spirit realm. A difficult skill that Davis warns may come at an undisclosed cost to the summoner. Naturally. Quick question, just spitballing here, not to be disrespectful. But if this guy is able to summon hurricanes, levitate, and most importantly, retrieve winning lottery numbers mystically, how is it that he is in the market to make any money at all as a bodyguard for a member of Congress? He should have won every lottery that's ever existed through his powers. I mean, 137 grand might sound like a lot to us, but to someone like him, right, it should be nothing. Trying to puzzle through that one. The Free Beacon was able to confirm just one event in which the psychic self-defense master provided security to Bush. So he's on the payroll. He's getting a lot of money for this. So far, this news organization could only find one event confirmed that he actually did the job, which is uh, kind of interesting. I mean, there, there might be something to look into there to sniff around. Maybe a campaign finance issue. Some sort of a graft involved. Who knows? That, I think, merits uh, some more scrutiny, we could say. Davis claims he chooses not to make use of his most destructive powers. But he is not above making threats, claiming in May of 2020 that he can cause his enemy's teeth to fall out whenever they speak his name. At publication time, the Free Beacon reporter says, this reporter's teeth remain firmly affixed to his head. Now I'm getting concerned because I have now spoken this name, Nathaniel Davis. And I keep checking with my tongue to see if my teeth feel like they're loosening at all. This guy, I mean, I'm in northern Illinois. St. Louis isn't that far. The man can levitate, okay? So I keep sort of glancing at my fourth floor window here to see if he's come for me yet. 
Apparently not. Although I could use some help with that lottery stuff that he was talking about. Wow. So he's a nut. He's a bigot. He's getting paid six figures, at least ostensibly, to protect this member of Congress who herself is a nut and a bigot. And, this was news to me, apparently a self-professed faith healer who can resurrect people from the dead. So, I'm just pointing this out and bringing this to your attention because it's a completely wild story. The media loves to cover sort of wacko right-wingers. They've got multiple reporters at major networks and newspapers whose beat is to cover that sort of thing and try to paint the right broadly with that brush. And there's less interest in some of the more, shall we say, colorful characters that absolutely exist in the fever swamps of the left, including this guy and the person who employs him, who's a member of Congress, who actually, if you can recall correctly, as I can, in addition to all of her defund the police stuff, she also did that, like, sit-in outdoors, or was that a year or two ago? I think it was on, like, rent cancellation or eviction cancellations, something like that, where she got Biden to take a completely illegal step because she threw a fit with AOC. So she's not just a backbencher. She's an influential one. Part of this little cabal in the squad that, I mean, the deeper you scratch beneath the surface, that whole group of ladies, man, there's some wild stuff there. Perhaps none wilder than Cori Bush, her non-husband security guard, who very generously apparently spends some of his time. He could be doing a lot of big things with his powers, but he spends some of his time, it seems, protecting Cori Bush along with some other armed men while she agitates to defund the police. What a story. There are updates on this, including involving my teeth. We will bring them to you as soon as possible. On the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. You know, I think it's time for a little Woke Tales action. Woke Tales. This is the latest in a string of these types of stories, which we've already addressed the previous examples. Here's a new one. We told you about Roald Dahl and his publisher, long after his death, just bodlerizing his work, sanitizing his work of problematic content in new editions. And that created a big stir, and I guess the publisher then said, okay, we'll offer both the original and the new airbrushed nonsense version. Then we heard the same thing about Ian Fleming and James Bond novels. These changes being made after these authors are dead. It's like, oh, yeah, we don't like their work anymore by our standards, but we still want to make money off of them. So we're just going to force their work, quote, unquote, to conform to our current standards. Very creepy to me. Here's an author who's still alive that they're doing it to. The Daily Caller with the story, children's book author, R.L. Stein accused his publishing company of sanitizing 
his Goosebumps series for re-release without his permission. According to the Times, the publisher, Scholastic, made several changes to original texts by editing portions of the books that discuss mental health and weight while also changing cultural references. Without Stein's knowledge, characters previously described as plump were rewritten as cheerful. The word slave was removed. Crazy was replaced with silly. Stein said that he has never changed a word in his Goosebumps books. The changes were made, quote, to keep the language current and avoid imagery that could negatively impact a young person's view of themselves today with a particular focus on mental health, Scholastic told the Daily Caller News Foundation. R.L. Stein says he made none of the changes himself. This was done without his permission by the publisher. Other mental health-related words also updated, with the company changing a real nut to a real wild one and a nutcase to a weirdo. Am I the only one who finds this stuff worse than outright book banning? I know I talked about this last time. To me, banning books is at least upfront in its tyranny. Altering the published works, changing them from what the authors actually wrote, obviously without their permission when they were dead. And in this case, the guy's alive. R.L. Stein. I remember Goosebumps, reading that as a kid. I said, oh, no, we're worried about some of these terms. So we're just going to go ahead and change them. To me, altering the text of published work and just sort of hoping no one notices is much creepier and much more Orwellian and just as tyrannical. This is a phenomenon that I think we should collectively reject. And if you have a problem with the content, at least have the courage to try to get stuff banned as opposed to these backdoor changes, stealth edits, which I personally find more disturbing. Of course, it's all crazy. Or, excuse me, I think I'm supposed to say the word weird, not crazy. You know, mental health connotation, problematic after all. Guy Benson Show back right after this. It's the happy hour. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Chugging ahead on this Tuesday, it's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Charlie Hurt joined us earlier, opinion editor at the Washington Times and a Fox News contributor. Always fun with Charlie. Here's part of that chat. The question that I have for you is, are you with me in that I'm a conservative who wants Randy Weingarten to remain the face of teachers unions forever? because she is so incredibly unappealing and stupid? Yeah, no, that's great. It's a great point, uh, and I uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, it's it's really amazing, and, and obviously, the, you know, the tweet itself, it's embarrassing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an embarrassing – it's an embarrassment that anybody – any uh, – um, teacher we would have uh, or anyone representing teachers would be that functionally illiterate. But the other thing that I think is kind of interesting um, is that she's a perfect representation of of the teachers union where, you know, it, it you get to the point where, you know, everybody supports teachers. They want teachers to be, they want to have good teachers and they want good schools. But But the teachers unions are so far beyond any of that, they're far more interested in partisan politics mm-hmm. than they are in, like, educating children. And so you have this idiot, illiterate tweet from her where she, you know, 
she's got a she she has her hands full considering the state of education, public education, especially in our country today. But then then suddenly she's positioning herself as an expert on housing and journalism and insurance policies. It's like no. stick to what you're bad at before you get into other fields, <laughs> yeah, you know? What do you think of that strategy to basically broadcast mutual contempt for the press? And is that something that you think that DeSantis can really keep up, even if he starts running for president here at some point? Oh, I think without a doubt. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that I per- and you and I may, may sort of uh, differ on this to some degrees. Um, but one of the things, that, of course, that I've always loved about Donald Trump is his, you know, just his freewheeling, you know, roundhouse kicking, going after the media all the time. And I find it enormously entertaining. And I've spent uh, my entire adult life in the media business. So and I know how much they deserve that. Um, so I, I, I delight in it. Um, now, is it always – and I think it's very effective in a, in a certain way, but then you run up against you, – you, it has its limitations where it doesn't – it's not necessarily as effective as, as it is entertaining. Um, I think that the DeSantis strategy in this department is highly effective, and it absolutely will – is something that, w- that can arm him uh, going forward. There's no reason in, in our modern times with all the different ways to reach people – that you have to be beholden to certain sects sects of the media that are like unhinged, lying, dishonest, despicable, all these things. They're, they're not honest brokers. And so absolutely, and, I, and I, I, I have to say one of the most appealing things to me about uh, DeSantis is his uh, somewhat measured, more measured than you know. I, of course, I'm, I'm I, I want to be entertained as well, um, but it's very effective, and it absolutely can um, can can you know he can run the the full race by by doing that without necessarily getting quite as much into the gutter as Donald Trump does with these people. Uh, even though I do I do relish that very much from Mr. Trump. What is your assessment of the early field and the emerging field and sort of handicap this for me, at least so far? What do you think of these folks? So I guess the the quickest things I would say, one is that that Nikki Haley seems to be more actually focused on somebody who's not in the race than is. Uh, A lot of her little barbs are directed more at DeSantis than they are. Um, at Trump, uh, we haven't really seen anybody really go after Trump uh, for perhaps obvious reasons. My full interview with Charlie Hurt, available in its entirety, along with the entire show, as always, start to finish, on demand, no charge at all, free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast, it's always there for your listening pleasure. When we come back, the home stretch. I mentioned earlier, it is my birthday today. And the team has done something. I'm not sure what it is. So we'll discover that together, plus a few more odds and ends next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on this Tuesday. From Illinois, it's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast every day on demand. And it is indeed my birthday. I am 38 years old today. 
which is pretty crazy to think about. Last year, I decided that 37 was going to be called, at least by me, the last year of my mid-30s, not the beginning year of my late-30s. But I have now checked that box. I am past that point. So officially, I'm in my late 30s. On the downslope to 40. There's no getting around it. Now, during the planning call, today's show earlier on, the team was suggesting that something had been put together in honor of my birthday. I have not heard it. I don't know what exactly it entails. I know that there was a collaboration, almost a collusion, if you will, among Christine and Dan and Wyatt on whatever this is. So they know what's coming. Just like you, though, I do not. So without further ado, whatever it is, here we go. Hey, guys. Happy birthday. Thinking about you being born in Saudi Arabia years ago. Happy birthday there, buddy. We are so excited to see that you're coming up on middle age so quickly. Now, if you only looked like you were middle age, that'd be even better. Happy birthday, guy, from Adam and Roy. Another crazy year in the books, but an even more exciting and thrilling one up ahead. We're excited for everything you've accomplished this year, and uh, we look forward to seeing what's in the store for next year. Happy birthday, guy. Hi, Benson. Benson. It's Laura Austin. What's up, man? It's Nathan Johnson. Happy birthday. Oh, happy birthday. We miss you. We're so happy you were born. Um, I hope you were celebrating in style today, and we think that you deserve to be serenaded. So, so happy, happy birthday, birthday to, to you. Feliz cumpleaños a ti. Tante dore con Guy Benson. Happy birthday to you. Hello, Guy. I'm so excited and honored that you are able to celebrate your birthday on my wedding anniversary once again. It must be very exciting for you as well. Uh, We love listening to the show, especially Bonus Benson in this house. And we love hearing about Carousel, God rest his soul, and all the hijinks that Christine gets into and all your judgment thereof. It's one of our favorite pastimes. And sometimes I even agree with Christine. Deal with it. And I've got some special guests here who would also like to say... Happy birthday, Guy Benson. <laughs> Hello, Guy. This is Wyatt. Y-Y. War Wyatt. Wall Street Wyatt. Wyatt Wyatt. Wishing you a happy, happy birthday. Guy, Dan, your engineer here, just wishing you a happy birthday. And I hope your birthday isn't the only thing you're celebrating this March. So good luck to the cats and enjoy your birthday. Well, well, well. You didn't think you were going to have a birthday montage without your best friend in it now, did you? I had all plans to come to D.C. and surprise you on your big day. But unfortunately, some travel issues got in the way. So the last birthday greeting is my present to you. Happy birthday, bestie. Guy Benson, this is Carly Rae Jepsen, and you are the birthday man of the hour, sounds like. So here is your birthday song. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear guy, happy birthday to you, and many, many, many more. Um, wishing you so much love today and happy day. Oh my goodness. My jaw is on the floor. Okay, hang on, let's just, let's just unpack this. So I heard from mom and dad and Adam 
Mary Catherine and the girls, YY Dan Cookie, a delightful but suspicious appearance from Laura and Nathan, who I loved hearing from in the Manchas, Broadway stars. We had her on the show, talked about her career and her new album a couple months back. And then the piece de resistance, and I suspect they had something to do with it. Carly Ray Jepsen, you have got to be joking. I don't know what to say. I mean, given given everything that we have talked about with her music and her hot jams, her many bops on this show, especially Cut to the Feeling, which is what we heard at the very, very end, bumping out of that, I am blown away. Christine, you have to tell me how this happened. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you liked it. I just have to, I have to say a couple of things here. Um, number one, I cannot get over how much you and your father sound alike. It's crazy. Number two, many, 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 many thanks to Laura. She, I bothered her and bothered her and bothered her to make this happen with Carly Rae. And she, she came through and it was just, I was so happy. We just, I can't thank her enough. And I knew that was, I was trying to think of people like, who can I get that would just, you know, blow them away. And I had some people I was trying for and, you know, they're a little busy right now. And uh, this all just worked out. So I'm glad you liked it. I will have to say I cut down, you know, I would have gotten a whole bunch more people, but I wanted that to be the star. So, oh, you know, I mean, I'm... so the, the reason I like I was trying to process this in real time. Uh-huh. I was just I wish you could have seen my face I when it was I Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> I, I was just I, I couldn't believe it. And I'm like, oh, because Laura and her husband, Nate, who we did such a great hour with them in studio, and she is such a talent, and he's no slouch unto himself in the musical department either. They are incredibly kind people, and they know Carly Rae Jepsen at least somewhat personally because, if I'm now remembering correctly, Laura was cast on Broadway as Cinderella, at one point, and played Cinderella for a period of time, and then her successor in the role years ago was Carly Rae Jepsen, and so they've stayed in touch. They knew each other well because of that, sort of training her up, and the evening after they came on our show, Laura and Nate, we went out to dinner. We went back to my place. It was around Christmas, and I think Adam was under the weather, so we just hung out and had a few drinks, and I mentioned my love of Carly Rae Jepsen because one of her songs came on on her playlist. And she's like, oh, I have this connection. So she texted her from my living room and got a text back, not about me, just like, hey, thinking of you, hope you're well. And I was so excited that someone had received a text message in my presence from Carly Rae Jepsen that it was like, in my mind, that was like the moment because I had seen Carly Rae, Adam and I went to go see her, in D.C. at the Anthem and had a great time to have her deliver a birthday message, including singing, to me on this program is just, I did not see that coming at all. (laughs) And I'm not sure I am quite as blown away as you were with the Backstreet Boys situation. Wow. But this, like, this is up there, I have to say. 
I am so, so happy. Um, the Benson team, we, we all came together for this. And I have to say, like, when I got that message, I was like, Jack pot. Like I had a wish list. She was my number one person to get. <laughs> so, and I remember telling my husband about this. He's like, you're never going to get that Christine. Like re no way. And when I sent it to him, he's like, I, I don't even want to know what you did to that poor lady to get it. <laughs> well, you, but, threatened um, to, you threatened to play Nickelback at her unless she did it. Uh, I, speaking of, I tried to get him the lead singer of Nickelback. That's true. She definitely did. To punish me on my birthday. (laughs) I really, really tried, but uh, couldn't. Nobody was getting back to me. I was even going to buy a cameo (laughs) and nothing, but I hope you enjoyed it. I I needed to surprise you in some way. I mean, I am your best friend here, and I hope you have a happy birthday. I mean, it's such a surprise. If you had told me there was a big surprise coming today, it would have been that you might show up at my event tonight here at Northwestern, like, surprise, bestie, I'm here. But no, this is even bigger. Carly Rae Jepsen. Ooh, okay. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that on the podcast for sure. I think we have to probably clip that and tweet it. <laughs> I'm going to put that on everywhere, on every platform I can think of, because my day is absolutely made. Thanks to everyone who were involved in that montage, brought a smile to my face, warming my heart on this chilly Tuesday in Chicagoland. We had a whole plan about the home stretch and we were going to talk about my flight out here and the service dog that was right at my feet this adorable bernadoodle and there was a couple with a young baby who was playing with the dog it was just a delightful start to the day even though it was far too early for my taste 7 a.m flight to get here to chicago in plenty of time for the show and everything like that but clearly any previous plan we're going to also like we had like on the rundown, different things we're going to talk about, just gone. It's just out the window. I'm not able to really function, frankly. I hope I can give this speech tonight. I could just show up at the speech and like play off of my phone, Carly Rae Jepsen, and just like mic drop and leave. I'm like, this is this is a vibe today, everyone. So thank God it's the end of the show because my brain is just not functioning effectively and probably want. I need some recovery time. So I'll sort of, you know, breathe in, breathe out, maybe go to the gym and reset because that's just awesome. I was just listening to a bunch of her songs over the weekend in Florida, like when I would get ready for the events that I was speaking at, like getting dressed and changed and all of that. I was just like blasting some CRJ. Little did I know what Cookie had in store as a big birthday surprise. And I don't want to like take anything away from anyone else in the montage but the other people in the montage are at least like somewhat expected very much unlike Carly Rae Jepsen I guess it actually reminds me around Christmas time on the Peloton bike Cody Rigsby who is one of my favorite instructors he would always talk about Mariah Carey and she's sort of this big not just a gay icon but just an icon in general, and of course she has the famous Christmas song that is fantastic but does get overplayed. So he was doing a Cody Rigsby Christmas ride, and it was all Christmas music by Mariah Carey, and then at the very end of the ride, she shows up in the studio, Mariah Carey, 
and you could hear everyone going crazy in the background, like, why is the audience, why are the people on their bikes losing their minds? Oh, Mariah's in the house. And then they cut to her, and I gasped out loud on the bike. Same exact reaction with Carly Rae Jepsen, who, truth be told, music-wise, I just, I prefer to Mariah Carey. Sorry, Mariah. It's like, it's fine. Well, I'm going to absolutely play cut to the feeling as I get in the zone for tonight's speech here at Northwestern. And a treat to be here at my alma mater on my birthday. Wow. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Carly Rae Jepsen. Thank you, Northwestern Wildcats. And thank you, audience. Back here from D.C. tomorrow for more of The Guy Benson Show. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.